its time, at least for this year, uh, to the book of Job. And uh, we will officially wrap up the book of Job this morning. And so I hope you've enjoyed it uh, as much as I have. Uh, One of my favorite books of the Bible, and uh, hopefully it's really been helpful and beneficial to you, and uh, I know it has been for me. Um, So Job part 10 is where we're going to be. What Job teaches us about ourselves and our God is where we're going to be. And so... um, Again, turn with me to the book of Job. Actually, uh, for this morning, we will see a handful, maybe two or three verses in the book of Job. Uh, but my hope this morning is to do a bit of a wrap-up, to, to, uh, to do a bit of a summary sermon. Um, most of the times, uh, when we look at a text, we read the text and we um, take a look at it and we see what it is there, there is to see, and then we make some applications. Uh, my hope for this morning is that this sermon will be um, mostly all application. And so we have seen the the book of Job. Uh, We've scoured over some of the verses. We've summarized other verses. Uh, This morning, my hope is that we will learn some lessons from the book of Job. Uh, I think that Job has lots to teach us, and and so I hope this this serves as a good summary, as a good solidifier, and uh, some some helpful things, I think, some helpful applications uh, from the book of Job. And so, uh, first of all, we'll see what Job teaches us about ourselves and what Job teaches us about our God. And so if you would pray with me this morning, uh, we're going to go ahead and dive in. Father, thanks for the day. Thanks that we can be here. Thank you for safety. Thank you for allowing us to be here uh, this morning. Thank you for the freshness of the snow. Uh, Thank you for your provision in our life. Thank you for your word uh, that has so much to speak to us. And in particular, we're grateful for the book of Job. And we're grateful for this godly man who has endured much, who uh, questioned and uh, accused and finally saw you face to face and saw you for who you are as as all-powerful, as all-knowing, as good, and as in control. And that was sufficient for him. Father, I pray for us now that your spirit would come, help us to continue to learn what it is that you would have for us to learn uh, from this book and from this great man. Uh, Spirit, would you come, soften our hearts, would you bring conviction where it needs to to happen, would you bring encouragement where we need to be encouraged, Uh, would you bring knowledge where we need to be enlightened, and would you help us to be obedient, uh, not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of your word uh, by your spirit. Father, we thank you for your son, again, during this Christmas season. I pray that our hearts would be set upon him, uh, that we would rejoice in who he is, that we would meditate upon his birth and and just the miraculous, uh, amazing thing that it is that he would put on flesh and that he would dwell with us and change the world and change us by his life and his death and his resurrection. Jesus, we thank you. We pray that you would be honored this morning. We ask for your presence. Amen. Children, I think, have a funny way of bringing perspective on some serious questions in life. Um, I came across some some questions that were asked to a group of you know seven to ten year olds, uh, some fairly serious questions, if you will. And uh, sometimes their responses, although they don't intend to be funny, I think are are quite humorous. And so um, let's listen to some some of the perspective that children can bring on some difficult or important, significant questions in life. Uh, Kristen, by the the age of 10, uh, was asked this question, how do you decide who it is that you're supposed to marry? And this was her response. Uh, No person really decides before they grow up. God decides it all way before. And you get to find out later who you're stuck with. (laughs) Derek, by the age of eight, was asked uh, this question. Um, how, can, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? 
uh, Derek says this, you might have to guess based on whether they're yelling at the same set of kids. Uh, Lori, also age eight, was asked this, uh, what do you think your mom and your dad have in common? Uh, what do they have in common? And Lori's response was this, they both say they don't want any more kids. <laughs> uh, Pam, age seven, and Kurt, uh, age seven as well, were asked this question, when is it okay to kiss someone? When is it okay to kiss someone? Pam said this, when they're rich, of course. Kurt, age seven. Well, the law says that you have to be 18, so I wouldn't want to mess with that. <laughs> that would be a good law, wouldn't it? Uh, Anita, age nine, was asked, is it better to be single or to be married? Good question. Uh, she has a, a wise advice. She says, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. And all the women said, Amen. And finally, Ricky, age 10, was asked, How do you make a marriage work? How would you make a marriage work? Ricky says this, Tell your wife she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. You know, kids can bring some helpful perspective on some fairly serious and significant questions in life. Um, What I hope we can do this morning is that um, we can step into the shoes of Job, and that we can step into the book of Job, and we can glean some perspective from Job himself, and we can glean some perspective from what the book of Job has to say about some other serious and important questions in life. In fact, the book of Job is full of questions. Uh, The book of Job raises several important questions. How am I to deal with suffering when it happens to me wrongly or unjustly? Do we need to understand God's ways in order to submit and to worship him? Uh, The book of Job is full of significant questions, and my hope this morning is that we can gain, uh, like the children, we can gain some perspective from what Job has to say about a couple things, uh, about ourselves and about our God. And so uh, if you have a a page in your Bible, maybe uh, the front of the book of Job or maybe the tail end of the book of Job, or if you're taking notes um, in one of our notebooks, I encourage you to do this. Write uh, on the left side one column and write this, what Job teaches us about ourselves. And so column number one, what Job teaches us about ourselves. And there are going to be five things uh, that Job is going to teach us about ourselves. And then to the right of that column, write this, what Job teaches us about our God. What Job teaches us about our God. There will only be two in that category, although there could be many. And so number one, what Job teaches us about ourselves. Uh, Five things, and so I encourage you to write these down. Five, I think, summary applications. What does Job show us about ourselves? Number one, we often receive God's unmerited blessings. We often are the recipients of God's unmerited free blessings. So bless God because of them. So bless God because of them. As we look at both the beginning of the book of Job and the ending of the book of Job, one thing is very apparent, and that is that Job was the recipient of God's unmerited blessings, uh, that, God, uh, that Job was the recipient of uh, 
an abundance of God's grace. If you recall, at the very beginning of the story, um, we see that Job was, according to the text, the richest man, the most wealthy, the most prominent man in the East. And as you read through verses 1 through 5, I believe it is, we get a portrait of God's unmerited blessings on Job. Uh, Job was a man of integrity, he was a man of character, but what the text indicates to us in the book as a whole is that Job was blessed by God, not because he deserved it, but because God freely chose to bless him tangibly and materially. When we look at the tail end of the book of Job, we find that God decided once again out of his free grace to bless Job again, even twice as much as he had before. And so what uh, this book, I think, of Job teaches us about ourselves is that we, like Job, are often uh, God's, we often receive God's unmerited blessings. We are recipients of God's blessings. I don't know about you, but it's one, of, uh, uh, it's one of my favorite things to do is to think about how God has blessed me. I mean, I don't know if you do that very often. We do that around Thanksgiving time, don't we? We think about how God has blessed us, and we think about uh, the recipients of God's grace. But if you actually take the time to think about how God has blessed us and how little we actually deserve of that. I think that's our problem. I think we think in our hearts and, and, and in our minds that we, actually res- that we actually deserve God's blessing, that we actually deserve all the things that we have. And certainly there's a place for hard work and diligence and all of those things. But when it comes down to it, uh, God's blessings are unmerited. We uh, work hard and our businesses grow. We have families and children. Uh, we have our health. We have uh, good food to eat, secure jobs maybe, a, a warm house or good friends. Uh, we have tons of blessings. Uh, one author by the name of Charles Allen says it this way, and, and I love his illustration. He says, a hog, a hog will eat acorns under a tree day after day, never looking up to see where they come from. Some people are like this. Some people are like that. But others are led through their blessings to realize the love of their heavenly Father. And so the first application, the first thing that Job teaches us about ourselves is that we receive God's unmerited blessing, and because of it, we should turn around and bless God. I wonder how often we look up, if you will, to see where our blessings come from. If you recall in the book of Job, after he lost everything, Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job says, I had unmerited blessings from God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then I've lost them all. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so this morning, uh, let's realize that we, like Job, receive God's unmerited blessings a hundred times over. And so because of them, we should turn upwards and bless God. Secondly, secondly, we may be the objects of God's testing. We may be the objects of God's testing, so don't be caught off guard. So don't be caught off guard. Uh, we notice in the book of Job that not only was Job the object of God's unmerited blessings in abundance, but the man who was the object of God's blessings then, a short four or five verses later, becomes the object of what? Of God's testing. He goes from being the, being the object of God's blessing to being the object of God's testing. And what surprises me is that I don't believe Job was caught off guard. Uh, something that 
it amazes me is when you think about the testing that God allowed Satan to bring on Job was that Job was tested in the areas of his, of his strengths. Did you ever notice that? The, the two real tests that God allowed Satan to test uh, Job with was first of all with his finances. He took away everything that he had and Job was a very wealthy man. Job was extremely wealthy and that is where God allowed Job to be tested by taking it all away. Secondly, Job was a man full of integrity, full of morality. And God allowed Job to be tested in that, that area uh, in a couple ways. He brought some friends who were not so good of friends, and they questioned and challenged his integrity, and he had to maintain his integrity. Secondly, he had to maintain his walk with God, his obedience with God, even in the midst of extreme suffering, even in the midst of questions that went unanswered. And so... The principle here is that we uh, often are objects of God's blessing, but tomorrow we may be the objects of God's testing. And I don't mean that to scare you. I don't mean that to make you go home and be fearful about what is going to happen tomorrow, but, but this is just a reality. We don't know what God is going to bring our way tomorrow. We may be uh, the object of God's blessing today, and tomorrow God may choose to test us in various ways. He may test our patience with a difficult or wayward child. He may taste, uh, test our faith in his provision by maybe a job loss or a cut in pay. He may test our unconditional love for our spouse uh, when strain comes into our relationship. God may test you in numerous ways. And so maybe you sit in your pew this morning and you say, man, like Job, God has blessed me so much. Well, Bless God because of that. But be aware. Don't be caught off guard. If we are the object of God's blessing, we may also be the object of God's testing. And he may just choose to test you, and he may just choose to test me in the areas of our strengths. So we've seen a couple things. Number three, what Job teaches us about ourselves. The third thing that Job teaches us about ourselves is that uh, we are stewards. We are stewards and everything we have is on loan from God. We are stewards, and everything we have is on loan from God. So hold on to it lightly. Hold on to it lightly. I think we see this most clearly from Job's response. Remember what happened to Job. He was wealthy. He was rich. He had ten adult children. He uh, was, you know, Bill Gates, if you will. He was the man. And in a matter of what seemed to be minutes, as one messenger after the other messenger after the other messenger after the other messenger informed him that everything he had, everything he owned, every means that he had of making a living, and even his ten children were gone. Just like that. They were gone. And let's look at verse 21 of chapter 1. Notice Job's response. What we're going to see from Job's response is that Job realized that he was just a steward, that everything he had was on loan from God, and so because of that, he could hold on to it lightly. Notice this. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice the first part. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. What Job essentially says is, when I came into this world, when I passed through, through the birthing canal, and I cried my first cry, 
I didn't have anything. I didn't bring anything into this world with me. I wasn't an owner in that moment. And then he says, naked shall I return. And, and while we may lay in our coffins with a, with a nice suit or some, some jewelry or something significant, we're not taking anything with us. What Job realized is that we are stewards. That means that everything from birth till death is not ours. We didn't come into the world with it. We don't leave with it. And so if it's not ours to begin with, and it's not ours to end with, it's God's. Everything in the middle is God's. And so we are stewards. That means we have responsibility of using God's stuff wisely and for his purposes, for our needs and for his glory. And so because of that, everything is on loan. And notice Job's response. He realized he was a steward. He realized it wasn't his. And here's a lesson for us parents, even his kids. Even his kids, he says, they're not mine. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because he realized he was a steward, he held on to it lightly. Do you notice that? He didn't grasp it. He didn't say it was mine. You took it away from me, God. He said, you can give and you can take. I hold on to my stuff lightly. And so I think we are, I think we come to the realization of this. I think we realize whether we really understand this and are applying this, if this is a reality in my life and in your life, when we, when we respond to loss, when we respond to loss. Um, and so when our job is lost, then we recognize whether we, are, we think we're stewards, whether we think that everything is on loan, or whether we think that it's ours. When we take a, a cut in pay, when our taxes increase, maybe there's an unexpected bill in the way, when there's a dip in the stock market, or when a, a child uh, that we love dearly goes wayward, when loss happens in my life and in your life, how we respond demonstrates whether we understand this or not. Alan Emery, an, another author, writes this. Uh, so true. He, he writes this. My, my parents consistently taught us that all we had must be held in an open hand. That when we lose, that when we closed our fingers over anything placed in our trust, we lost the joy in the blessing. And notice this last part. Things acquired as an end in themselves become idols and possess us. And so when we close the hand, we think that we are possessing them. In reality, they are possessing us. And so the third thing we learn is that since we're stewards, everything we have is on loan from God, we should hold on to those things with a very loose grip. So we've seen three things that Job teaches us about ourselves. Number four, the fourth thing that Job teaches us about ourselves, we might we might have well-meaning people. We might have well-meaning people give us wrong advice. So use biblical discernment. We might have people who are full of good intentions, who genuinely love us and, and desire our best, give us wrong, unsound, unbiblical advice. And so because of that, we need to develop and use what I would call biblically informed discernment. 
Uh, Emma Baumbach, in one of her books, uh, gives uh, seven bits of advice. Uh, Interesting, uh, funny, I believe. Uh, The first bit of advice she gives is this. Never have more children than you you have car windows. (laughs) I think that's pretty true. Never loan your car to someone to whom you have given birth. I'm sure you've done that before, as my parents have. Pick your friends carefully. A friend never goes on a diet when you're fat or tells you how lucky you are to have a husband who remembers Mother's Day when his gift is a smoke alarm. Number four, seize the moment. Remember all those women on the Titanic who waved off the dessert cart. (laughs) Uh, That's why I have dessert first. Um, Know the difference between success and fame. Success is Mother Teresa. Fame is Madonna. Number six, never be in a hurry to terminate a marriage. Remember, you may need this man or woman someday to finish your sentences. (laughs) Finally, there are no guarantees in marriage. If that's what you're looking for, go live with a Sears battery. You know, there are bits of good advice and bits of bad advice out there. um, But remember the bit of bad advice that Job received from his wife. You remember the circumstance? It was after the second second, um, attack from Satan. Job had lost everything he had owned. He had lost his adult children. And then the second attack came and he lost his health. Boils up and down, sickness, fever, the, the whole nine yards. You remember that. And at that point... Job's wife, who surely loved him, who surely was faithful to him, who surely had his best interest in mind, who surely just wanted the pain to stop, gives him this bit of advice in in verse 9 of chapter 2. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Remember that she suggested uh, that he drop his integrity, that he not follow God, that he forget about his morality, that he um, reject God, the very thing uh, that God commended Job for. She says you need to forget about. And the very thing that Satan wanted Job to do, curse God, she suggests. It's, it's, it's easy for us to come down hard, I think, on Job's wife. This was certainly bad advice. Um, but I, I think she just wanted it to end, you know. I think she really had his best interest in mind. I think she just, she didn't want to see him suffer any longer. And so she suggests that he curse God and that God would take his life. You know, we also will have people in our life that are well-meaning, uh, that, uh, that have good intentions, that, that love us, that will give us this kind of advice that will give us wrong advice. And so we need to use biblically informed discernment. That is, we need to have our mind and our hearts and our wills soaked in what the Bible says is true, soaked in who God truly is, soaked in what is right and wrong, so that in that moment we can respond quickly as Job did. Job didn't hesitate. He didn't consider it. He didn't say, let me chew on that suggestion. Remember what he said? He says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Can we not receive good from the hand of the Lord and and bad? He responded. He had a biblically informed discernment. And so, uh, men and women, so must we. When someone uh, tells us, you don't need to respect your husband. He treats you this way. He speaks of you that way. He does X, Y, and Z. You don't need to respect him unconditionally, even though the Bible says it does. Um, You don't need to do that. Just disregard, disrespect. People will say to you, young folks, 
Just keep sleeping with him. What does it matter? You want to keep him, don't you? You want to maintain the relationship, don't you? Just keep giving him what he wants. It's okay. Well-intentioned people will give us wrong advice. They will give us wrong advice. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, well-known preacher, says this. Well-meaning people don't always have a divine viewpoint. Well-intended, well-meaning people don't always have a divine viewpoint, but the Bible always does. And so since well-meaning people will often give us wrong advice, let's have some biblical discernment. Fifth, the last thing that Job teaches us about ourselves is this. We can easily become Monday morning quarterbacks. And if you're not familiar with football, I'll explain that in a bit. We can easily become Monday morning quarterbacks with others' sufferings. So be, so be slow to judge. Be slow to judge. <clears throat> Think about Job's friends. Do you remember the scenario with Job's three friends? They came from probably uh, miles away, and for seven days and seven nights, they sat with him in silence. They, they said nothing. They intended to comfort him. They intended to be uh, helpful and to sympathize with him. And after seven days, Job breaks the silence. He goes on a bit of a, of a rant, and then it's on. And we have 20-something chapters worth of dialogue in which these helpful friends make wrong conclusions. They make wrong accusations. Remember, you remember that? They didn't have their facts straight, did they? They didn't fully understand the story. They didn't exactly know what Job had done or or he hadn't done. They were jumping to conclusions. They were blaming Job. They were saying, Job, you must repent. This is your fault. There's sin in your life and that's why they're suffering. And they were wrong. They were wrong. They played what I would call Monday morning quarterbacks. If you're not familiar with that, they're called Monday morning quarterbacks because uh, pro football is played on Sunday and on Monday morning, uh, cooler talk around the office or uh, wherever you may be for those guys or gals who like football, um, we sit back and we say, I can't believe that Jay Cutler threw that pass in the third quarter. What was he thinking? I mean, yeah, he had two or three guys rushing him, and yeah, there was single. No, there was double coverage. Why didn't he just take a hit? Why didn't he just take a sack? He threw an interception, and he blew the game. If I would have been Jay Culler, I just would have taken the hit, right? We play Monday morning quarterback. Yeah, right. 300 guys, pound guys, barreling at you. I just would have taken the hit, right? And we, we criticize when we probably have never played a lick of quarterback in our life, Maybe we've never played football in our life, but we think, well, he didn't see the open receiver on the right side of the field. What was he thinking? And we're not in their shoes. We've never done it. We don't know all the facts, and we are quick to judge. You know, we do this with other people as well, don't we? We see situations with people. We see circumstances that other people are in. We see that maybe it's a difficult circumstance. They're suffering uh, financial or emotional or, or whatever, And we can sit back like Job's friends and very easily play the Monday morning quarterback game and say, well, this is probably what's happening. And well, if they would have done this and well, if she didn't speak that way and well, if he would have made that decision and we play the Monday morning quarterback. Certainly there is a place for uh, consequences. Certainly people make decisions 
and they reap the benefit or consequences of those decisions. Certainly, what Job teaches us is that until we know the facts, until we've talked to the person, until we know the entire story, let's be slow to judge. I want to share with you a quick example of uh, my failure in this um, as it relates to um, my alma mater's head football coach. Uh, many of you know, forgive me for the football illustrations this morning, it's just that time of year, you know. Um, as many of you know, I'm a big college football fan, and my alma mater uh, actually did a pretty, we had a pretty good season uh, this year, but there was a point in time uh, several, several weeks ago when my team, uh, in the middle of a loss, or a, what was assumed to be a loss, uh, fell to three and three. And if any of you are on Facebook, you might have saw me put a, a bit of an aggravated Monday morning quarterback kind of a statement up on Facebook. It was a bit of a rant done in fresh. Did anybody see that, by the way? Anybody happen to see that? Okay, a few people did. Well, everyone's going to... Here's what I wrote on Facebook when my team was three and three and I was about to punch the TV. Not really, but uh, <clears throat> this is what I wrote on Facebook, my internet cyber event. Forgive my impatience, but my alma mater's head coach must go. I'm ready for his head to be chopped at this point. We will fall to 3-3 three and three this season after Missouri finishes their beatdown of us on our home turf, which used to be respected, it used to be feared, but now it's the butt of jokes. He is worse than his predecessor at the same point in their A&M career. His team makes mental mistakes, can do nothing on offense, and defensively are only mildly improving. <laughs> in my own words. And... Uh, I've never, I played junior high football, <laughs> and I've never been a head coach, <laughs> um, but I was playing some Saturday afternoon quarterback then, and uh, I, so I'm here to say on the record, I was wrong, we shouldn't have fired him, uh, after that we were 3-3, three and three and we run off six straight wins, and we're 9-3, and three and we're going to the Cotton Bowl, um, so I was wrong, okay? Um, but, you know, we do this with people. We do this. And so the last bit of advice from Job is that let's not jump to conclusions. Let's not place blame where it's not deserved. Let's know the facts. And let's not be a Monday morning quarterback. So five things, I think, that the book of Job teaches us about ourselves um, that you may need now or you may need later. Um, to, to conclude the book of Job, I want us to look at the other column now. Uh, what Job teaches us about our God. Uh, there could be several more of these. I've chosen to kind of focus in on chapter 42. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Job 42. We'll see a couple comments. What we're going to see is that um, Job, having, having seen a fresh revelation of God, remember what happened. He wanted to put God on the stand. He wanted uh, to accuse God of uh, being unjust, of not running the universe rightly, of not having a, a purpose or an intent for his suffering. He didn't think that God was doing a good job with his situation and with all the other injustices in the world. And so he wanted to put God on trial. Uh, God comes and reveals himself in the midst of a whirlwind. There are two speeches. Uh, God shows himself to be fully capable of running the world, to be fully in control of all things, and to be sovereignly uh, a good to his creation. And so Job then responds in chapter 42. Job responds, and I think we can learn a couple things about our God uh, from Job's response. The first thing that we see about our God is this. Our God is omnipotent. 
And so we can trust him with the details of our life. Our God is omnipotent. Omni meaning all, potent meaning powerful. Our God is all powerful. You could say sovereign is a related attribute to this. Since our God is omnipotent, Job and we can trust him with the details of our life. Verse 2 of chapter 42, Job responded and he says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so there's a a positive element to God's omnipotence and there's a negative element to God's omnipotence. Notice the positive element of, of God's omnipotence, that God can do all things. Uh, four times in the scriptures, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we read that with God, nothing is what? Impossible, right? This is a restatement of that. God can do all things. That is, within uh, his character, there is nothing that he cannot do. On the, on the negative sense, that means that, what, that, that no purpose of his, no desire that he has can be thwarted. Notice, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Uh, this is an amazing thing. I mean, think about this. Not only does God uh, uh, has, have infinite power, there's nothing beyond the scope of, uh, of, of doing, but any intention he has, anything that he desires to do, no one and nothing can limit that. So that means, I mean, I think if, if I were like that, I mean, wow, anything I ever wanted, it, 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 there was no limitations. This is God's omnipotence. And so for Job, what that meant was that he could trust him with the details of his life, that he could trust him with the moment of hardship that he was going with, that God could handle it, that he could orchestrate the details of his life according to his will, according to his purposes, for Job's good. And he could trust him to do that. And so I don't know what you're going through right now or what you have been through or maybe what you will be going through. We often think and question, is it, does it have a purpose is it, uh, is, is it without intentionality? Is it meaningless? Is God really orchestrating this for my good, as Romans 8.28 says? Um, and what Job wants us to know about our God is that he is all-powerful. And because he is all-powerful, he is sovereign over the events and the details of our life, and he knows what he's doing, and that we can trust him with that. There's a lovely poem that I'd like to read to you. It's in a book called uh, The Best Love Poems of the American People. And it's by an author by the name of Hazel Fellmans. The poem is called The Loom of Time. Uh, I think it's a helpful uh, illustration. Like all illustrations, they're not perfect. But I think this is a helpful illustration to demonstrate this point. And, And so it reads like this. Man's life is laid in the loom of time to pattern he does not see while the weavers work and shuttles fly till the dawn of eternity. Some shuttles are filled with silver threads and some with threads of gold while often but the darker hues are all that they may hold. But the weaver watches with skillful eye each shuttle fly to and fro and sees the pattern so deftly wrought as the loom moves sure. And slow. God surely patterned, uh, planned the pattern. Each thread, the dark and the fair, is chosen by his master skill and placed in the web with care. 
He knows only its beauty and guides the shuttles which hold the threads so unattractive as well as the threads of gold. Not till each loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God reveal the pattern and explain the reason why. The dark threads were as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver for the pattern which he has planned. That's pretty much what Romans 8.28 says. That's what Joseph learned in the Old Testament. um, That God, in the panorama of everything that he is doing, weaves that which is good, weaves that which is bad. And he is sovereign over the details of our life. And he is weaving something that from an eternal perspective, and I think when we see him face to face one day, I think we will marvel at that which he is painting, at the big picture that he is portraying at what he's weaving. So first of all, our God is omnipotent. Secondly, and finally, our God is omniscient. Our God is omniscient. So recognize your limited understanding. Omniscient, omni meaning all, omniscient uh, referring to knowledge. That is that God is all-knowing, that he is all-knowledgeable, that he knows everything, everything that is, everything that was, everything that will be, everything that could be. There is no, uh, no limit to that which he knows. Job, I think, learned this clearly as well. Look at verse 3. Job says this, Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Notice that. I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Essentially what Job says as he got a revelation from God as he understood better who God was, but he didn't get any answers as we have repeated several times. There was no explanation. There was no answers. Job says, I've spoken of things that are too wonderful for me. I didn't fully understand them. God, I didn't fully understand and I still don't fully understand your plan. I don't understand fully how you can run the world. I don't uh, fully understand how you allow for suffering. And yet what Job came away with was that God did, that he was omniscient, that he is all-knowing, and he came to the place. Notice what he does. He recognizes his limited understanding. He said, I spoke about things I didn't know. I spoke about things I did not know. There are things out there that we don't know, that we don't understand, that we cannot comprehend, that God does. And it's okay. So recognize your limited understanding. John Wesley, uh, the founder of the Methodist Church way back when, uh, says this. I, I think he puts it in a good way. He says, Give me a worm, give me a worm that can understand a man, and I will give you a man who can understand God. Uh, it's an interesting way to put it. And so while we certainly can understand lots about God, not that we can't understand anything about God, God has revealed himself to us. And there's lots that we can understand about God. God intends to reveal himself to us, but we must be humble and we must recognize that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that our, uh, his ways are higher than our ways, and that we are not God. We have to be okay with our limited understanding. And so we have to be okay when God reveals himself in Scripture who he is, all of his attributes and the multitude of them. And we say, well, how can God be just and loving at the same time? I don't fully understand that, but I accept it. That's how God has revealed himself to be. We have to be okay that 
God doesn't always work the way that we think he should work. When our logic says, if A is, is this and B is this and A plus B equals C, and God's logic, maybe it's just not quite like ours. We have to be okay with our limited understanding. We have to be okay and not fully understanding how, how God works <laughs> the details of our life and how he is weaving things for our good, as the scripture says, but we just don't, we, we don't fully grasp that. We may not fully grasp why God allows things to happen in our life. Job didn't fully understand. He didn't have answers. But it was okay. It was okay. Because he had a big picture of who God was. And that was okay with him. I'd like to close this morning with a story. Uh, Most of you, probably most of us, are familiar with General Douglas MacArthur. uh, MacArthur, I should say. Um, He has written a book called uh, Reminiscences. Sorry, Reminiscences. You know the word I'm trying to say that. And uh, in his book, he shares about a classroom experience, uh, a classroom experience he had at West Point. And I think it illustrates very well this point about God's omniscience and having to be okay with our limited understanding. He says in a, a section of that book, he says this, the first section, that is the first class, the first section was studying the time-space relationship later formulated by Einstein in his theory of relativity. Heavy stuff. The text was complex, and being unable to comprehend it, I committed the pages to memory. How many of us have done that? <laughs> Just memorize it. That's how I got through school, I think. When I, when I was called upon to recite, I solemnly reeled off almost everything I could remember, word for word, what the book had said. Our instructor, uh, Colonel uh, Feinberg, looked at me somewhat quizzically and asked, Do you understand this theory? It was a bad moment for me, he writes, but I did not hesitate in replying, No, sir. No, sir. You could have heard a pin drop. I braced myself and I waited. And then the slow words of the professor, Neither do I, Mr. MacArthur. Section is dismissed. You know, I think that's a wonderful illustration uh, for us. Uh, MacArthur recognized uh, that he didn't fully understand what Einstein was saying. He understood it partially, but he did not fully comprehend uh, what Einstein was saying. And we uh, cannot fully comprehend an infinitely glorious God. We can understand him in part, uh, but not completely. And Job was okay with that. And my hope and prayer is that we will be as well. So we've seen what Job teaches us about ourself, and we've seen what Job teaches us about our God. And I hope that you have enjoyed Job as much as I have. Would you pray with me?